Welcome everyone to this special edition of Radio in the Public's Interest here on your grassroots community radio station, WFMP 106.5 FM Forward Radio. And I always think of WFMP as want to feel more powerful. I'm your host, Ruth Newman, here on Truth to Power, and I am here today with Terrell Holder, who is chair of the Greater Louisville Sierra Club. This is a fantastic organization that is dedicated to enjoying, exploring, and protecting our natural resources. It's national, but this is the local chapter. We're going to talk about some local issues and initiatives. So welcome, Terrell Holder. And if you would briefly give us your vision of the Greater Louisville Sierra Club. Well, you know, we're a little bit different from a lot of nonprofits. We have two important functions, I think. Uh, you can split us down the middle almost between getting people outdoors through outings programs and being alert to issues that are important to us in the community that we can, at the very least, we can give voice to where we think there's inequity. So activism on, on the environmental social spectrum and getting people outside so we'll have more people to learn about and enjoy the outdoors that become uh, those that care about taking care of nature. It's our two branches that we really divide ourselves and divide our time and effort towards. Very good. And they both com come together for us to be healthier, which is especially important now during this pandemic, to be outdoors, and for the environment, for our resources, our woods and, and habitats to be healthier, because that is what is screaming for help right now. So I'm so glad we have the Sierra Club. The, the activities are separate, but we don't separate the concept. Uh, the idea of people on one side and nature on the other side, healthy people and healthy nature, it goes together. We, re we re depend on nature. It's, we require nature to survive. And so many people, I think, take it for granted even still. After years and years of activism, issues, fights, going way back to the 60s and before, there's still people that aren't able to um, connect the fact that they're dependent on nature and the health of us and nature depend on each other. So it's a very important relationship that we don't want to separate. Right, exactly. Nature can survive without us, but we cannot survive without nature. That's true. <laughs> nature will survive without us <laughs> in the long yeah. run, I think, but um, hopefully that's a way, way down the road. Thank goodness for air, water, soil, and plants, and the critters. What's going on with the Sierra Club? Well, right now, one of the things we're keeping our eye on is a uh, proposed rezoning in what's known as the Floyd's Fork District Review Overlay. Now, the Floyd's Fork District Review Overlay was created in um, 1993 after a couple of years of hard fought work by the people along Floyd's Fork. And what it does is it provides a special district in the city that is designed to both preserve the ecological integrity of the watershed, but also the uh, historic cultural heritage integrity of the watershed as well. It's a great place to go take a drive in the country if you, if you like to do that uh, and not even have to leave the county. It has a culture and a flavor all its own. 
but also Floyd's Fork Creek has about 30 miles worth of stream in the county of Jefferson itself. So it meanders from Oldham County and Shelby County line all the way down to Bullitt County for over 30 miles in Jefferson County. So it's a really, really important watershed. And the district review overlay surrounds that watershed and, and is about 16 miles in length. So it, it shortens all the meanders of the creek, but it's still a, a really huge area that is already protected by zoning and it's embedded in our land development code. So this is not us trying to create a new regulation. This is us trying to hold on to what we think is a good and right regulation and not have it lose its integrity. And, and this threat is actually more than one, but one development in particular at um, 8,000 Broad Run Road in Jefferson County, that's South Turn Creek, uh, J-Town, beyond the Snyder Freeway. They've got about 192 acres and they want to build uh, 500 and, it's not going to be quite right, 580 houses on 190 acres. And half of the property that they're going to use is zoned RR, which is uh, in our land development code is, is rural residential, which means in simple language is that you can't build a house or improve the property in that zone with on less than five acres of land. So you have the ability to build a house out there on five acres in an RR zone, but they want to change it to um, PRD zone, which is um, planned residential development. And they get to trade off some things in that particular zone. Um, they can have more houses as long as they leave and create green space. This is all well and good. Under normal circumstances, in a normal place, a well-designed PRD would be okay. It would be fine. The problem with this is it is adjacent to Floyd's Fork, and they want to change that RR zoning to a uh, PRD zoning, which allows for so many more houses. And this is bad, not just because of the massive number of houses they're going to build, but because it breaks the boundary. It cuts away at the established boundaries of the Floyd's Fork development review overlay. As of right now, as far as I know, and I still have not gotten a definitive answer, and I'm waiting, I was hoping I could get it today. As of now, it's my understanding that there has never been a zoning change within that design review overlay, that 16 mile area along Floyd's Fork that was put into the statutes almost 30 years ago. Up till now, there has not been a zoning change in that geographical area as far as I know at this moment. Now that may change. I was out in J-Town the other night and I'm a golfer. So I was playing golf out in Charlie Ventner Park and the traffic was really heavy. I would normally turn left to go toward the Snyder Freeway and I had to turn right because of traffic. Went through J-Town to Taylorsville Road, turned right out Taylorsville Road towards the Snyder Freeway southeast. And it was amazing to me. And I've seen it before, but at night with a lot of traffic, it just looks even more stark. The development along Taylorsville Road, it's already completely developed for the most part along Taylorsville Road, all the way out to Interstate 265. So this is the path of progress. And the path of progress is east and south, which puts Floyd's Fork right in the path of the growth and development of um, Jefferson County. 
to me, the important issue is that we've got to hold the line. We have a good regulation. We have a sound regulation. We have just regulations that allow for development. But if we start to change the zoning here, you know, there's 100 acres here, there'll be another 100 acres somewhere else. And the, that review overlay not only shrinks in size, but the potential runoff from impervious surfaces, the added traffic on those country roads, the destruction of woods that would be necessary for the development of this subdivision, and the fact that they could build houses right in view of the Floyd's Fork Valley, where now it's just trees when you drive through there. So it's not so much as we think development is so bad in all cases, although we would prefer to see more you know, developing open spaces that already exist within the county and then correcting some of the areas that need correcting um, in terms of transitioning away from old shopping centers to new residential, you know, you reusing space that's already there. But here we've got a good regulation and it's a good place for us to hold the line. And I don't know what's going to happen, but we're very interested in how this goes. And um, John Muir supposedly said one time, if we planted a tree, this great tree as a monument to all the trees that we cut, there'd be a lawyer and a developer at the bottom of the tree eloquently arguing why that tree should be cut down. That's what they're going to do. They're going to try to argue that this is good and right development in an appropriate path in an appropriate place. And we're saying, no, let's leave this watershed alone. Does that development review overlay, does that carry any legal authority with it? Or is oh, absolutely. It just, so is that what you mean when you say that we've already got the regulations? And yes, this, this development re review overlay has been in force for almost 30 years. I see. And um, if people want to build a new house on their property within that area, they can. They just have to build it within the, the requirements of the land development code regarding this overlay. So yes, the overlay is there and everybody that does any kind of development or building or changing has to follow those rules. If this zoning change goes through, it'll be a breach in the wall, basically. It'll be the planning commission saying to the people in that area that, oh no, we think that this development is more important than this development overlay space, than the heritage and, and ecological character of Floyd's Fork watershed. How, how does this intersect with the parklands? Is there any relationship? There's no relationship between the parklands of Floyd's Fork and the development review overlay, with the exception is that the parklands are within that space. Mm -hmm. The entire parklands of Floyd's Fork from Bardstown Road over to Shelbyville Road lies within the development review overlay. So we as a community felt that it was important enough of a place to develop this really nice park. The parklands of Floyd's Fork are there because of the, the characteristics of, of the watershed, the beauty of the hills and the creek and, and so forth. So that's the only relationship is that they're in the same place. Do you think that the parklands might have been a magnet for developers to think they could get higher profits from developing out there? That's a, a really good point. Uh, it has been suggested, and it's it's probably true, that when you have a nice public resource like the parklands, people are going to want to be close to it. So yeah, I've heard it called a sprawl magnet. The parklands of Floyd's Park was originally developed. There was um, a big concern that this would enhance and hasten 
development out toward the east and south in Jefferson County. I don't know if that's true, but I think that the parklands of Floyd's Fork makes it a nice place to live with that resource there. Now, you can live near the parklands of Floyd's Fork. You can live in the parklands of Floyd's Fork. You just can't change the character, ecological, social heritage character of that space. It's not a nature preserve. It's a special zoning district within our county, and it's a good one. It's there for a purpose. It was designed with a purpose. It was fought for knowing 30 years ago that sooner or later, the path of, the, of development was going to head that way. I think to myself, it's an important watershed. As a matter of fact, I read that it was the county's largest watershed, 62 miles of tributary. It makes me wonder because look at these places in Florida where they build huge condos and private property right on the beach so that private people can have their own spot on the beach. And then that becomes a barrier to public access. And then it also puts down a whole lot of impervious surfaces. And here in Louisville, we've got those apartments that got built right along our Ohio River so that they block the view and they also create more impervious surfaces and more foreign materials going into the Ohio River. And it just seems like when you've got a beautiful spot like they've created with the parklands, the developers are not far behind because they see a way of profiting. Mm -hmm. And that's something that citizens all over need to protect, at least <laughs> that's my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. and. and... You bring up a really good point. I mean, you look at the coastal Florida, both East Coast and West Coast, it's too late. They can't undo Miami. They can't undo Fort Lauderdale. They can't undo the, the mass development that basically stretches nonstop from Biscayne Bay to Jacksonville. It's too late, but it's not too late for this space. Now, what I like to do when I talk with people about it is that let's stop think about it in terms of today. We know that regardless of what we do as a community, it's very likely that that part of our county where we have lots of vacant land is, is eventually going to be developed. And what I like to get people to visualize is imagine you live in Southeast Louisville, Fern Creek, J-Town, beyond the Snyder Freeway around the Floyd's Fork watershed. You can drive through fully developed J-Town and then pass into a woodland area with farmsteads, large yards, trees, woods, and you drive for a couple of miles and wander around the creek, come up out of that beautiful natural place into more development subdivision. So in the long run, this will be a beautiful green corridor to the eastern and southeastern part of our county. And if you can imagine what it will be like in 50 years if this special district stays intact, mm -hmm. you can imagine driving across this beautiful green space. But if you think 50 years in the future, when we allow them to disregard or just toss it away in the name of, of development and progress, it's just going to be another bridge across a, a creek with houses and apartments everywhere, just like it is everywhere else. So that's why it's important to us. Absolutely. I was also reading that Jefferson County Public Schools has also applied. I, have you heard anything about this? I think they've purchased or they're thinking of purchasing 40 acres somewhere in Floyd's Fork for building a school. And the problem with that is it's also going to attract more development 
into the parklands or toward the parklands. I have not seen that. Do you know about where that is? In Echo, Echo Trail. It's 40 acres on Echo Trail. Well, Echo Trail is in that area. Whether or not it's in the special district, I can't say. You know, it very well could be, and I don't know this, it very well could be that the school is an appropriate use if it conforms to the regulations within that overlay district. So uh, it's hard to say one way or another. There, there's going to be development out there. There is now, and it's happening now. Yeah. Schools are necessary, parks are necessary, but also this district was conserved in a special district for a purpose. And we want that purpose to remain intact. We want the area to remain intact. So right now, as you see it, it's illegal for them to do any developing there because they violate the overlay. Without any changes right now, they could build, like I said, it's 192 acres, I believe. And um, part of the property that's not in the overlay is zoned R4. So they could build, you know, 300 houses on that property. No problem. Uh -huh. There's another half of the property about 90 acres, 100 acres, that's within the overlay that they want to change. So, and they could build there too. They could build houses on five acre lots. They could have some spectacular estates if they conformed to the guidelines within the development review. And so, who are these developers? Highgate Development is, is the name of the group. It's a partnership with the landowners and so forth. 600 houses is a lot of houses. It's a very large development. This is not small. This is not a little subdivision. This is a big development. It's a greenfield development, meaning it, it's being built on land that was previously used for agriculture. We're not building new houses where old houses were. They're not building apartments and condos where old houses were. This is, they're taking a farm and putting, you know, 580 houses on it. Detached and attached housing. So It'll be quite dense. Do you happen to know where people could go to get more information or to, to at least be informed of the, the status of where things oh, stand? Uh, you can go to our website at sierraclub.org slash greater Louisville group, all one word. And we have an article out there and some links where you can find out information about it. Um, you can also get in touch with the Metro Planning and Design Services and they will answer your questions and, and give you status updates on where this development is, 8,000 Broad Run Road in uh, Southeast Louisville. Metro Planning and Design Services, what is their function? They're the group that is responsible for managing our land development, uh, making sure that people who are doing land use changes of any kind conform to the requirements in the land development code. Essentially, it's zoning, but it's so much more than that. The Land Development Code is a huge document that gets updated periodically. We have a fairly new version out there right now that's available on LouisvilleKY.gov. Just Google Land Development Code and you'll find it. But it's a, it's a huge document, and it's not only about the zoning, but it's also about character. There are several goals in the Land Development Code, including environmental health, human health, walkability, having plenty of green space. It manages a whole lot more than just what kind of building you can build or how big a building you can build on a particular site. It's long and boring, but there's a whole section in the land development code about this particular special district. 
I just hope that they do their due diligence and they stick to the goals of that overlay and that we keep our green spaces that are dwindling so rapidly. Thank you for that, Terrell. Now, again, it's not just about the green space. It is about the ecological health of the stream and, and its tributaries, but it's also about the character of the place. It's not a nature preserve. It's an important district in our community, and there's multiple benefits from conforming to the rules that are already there. I must say, when I saw all of these resources going into the parklands, I felt like some of that should have gone into Louisville instead. They should have spent a lot of that money, in my opinion, on putting bike lanes here in Louisville. They were doing things that would create a compulsion to go out there and ride your bike. When you could, if we had enough bike lanes here in Louisville, using our bikes for being able to commute back and forth, go to the grocery store, go to school. But we can't because they didn't spend the money. I'm trapped where I live. Not only is there no bike lane, there's no shoulders. If I go down any of the streets around me, Hillcrest, Zorn Avenue, Brownsboro, Melwood, there's no shoulders. There's nowhere to bike. And when I go down Hillcrest, and I'm probably going to get in trouble with this, I go on the sidewalk because I'm not going to get out there in a lane with a car with no shoulder, nowhere to pull over to the right and let a car pass. Yeah, I agree with you. And and let me say, the beginnings of the parklands of Floyd's Fork were not universally accepted. Now, it's a two-edged sword. For me, it's a beautiful, beautiful resource, the parklands. There's great places to go hiking. They have staff out there that are wonderful with visitors. They're, they've done some wonderful stuff. But it's also, sadly, it's in the far, far hinterland of the East End, and it encourages development to pull that direction. When a lot of our central city, south and west, has been neglected, I'm talking about streets not having been paved and streetlights going dark and the city not responding quickly enough to people's calls. I mean, in a sense, it's a, it's a typical split between rich suburban folks can do for themselves because there's no way for people mm -hmm. without vehicles to get to the parklands of Floyd's Fork because there's no bus out there. And if you don't have a car, you're just basically unable to get there. It's a great place where money was spent that might have been better spent elsewhere. The parklands was a private development. You know, it's, it's a partnership between the parks and the 21st century parks. It's limited to who can get there and while it's beautiful, there's still lots of things in other parts of town that need help. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think I read that 21st Century Parks, it's some kind of a private... Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a non-profit. We're both right. It's a private, non-profit corporation. I thought I read that they also were considering some kind of a development for profit. Do you want to talk about another issue? Another thing we're doing right now is we're looking at Louisville Gas and Electric, LG&E KU has just released a new uh, integrated uh, resource plan. Essentially, it's a forward-looking document that predicts their usage for electricity and gas and 
explains how they're going to meet that need over the coming years. Now, what's fascinating about them, you, you read it, it is, it's really important. We couldn't be sitting here talking now if we didn't have very, very reliable electrical service 24-7 every day of the year. A blackout would be a would be a tragedy. You know what happens when the ice comes and breaks the power lines, or if a tree falls. When you're out of power, you're you're really um, you're up a you're, creek. You're a Floyd's Fork without a paddle. <laughs> it, the idea is this is how they're going to keep that service going. And what we're looking at is not just their analysis of demand predictions of how much power is going to be needed over time. Since LG&E is mostly fossil fuel powered, mm -hmm. in order to get in line with the changing climate and doing the things that we need to do to keep the greenhouse gas emissions as low as possible, they should be transitioning to cleaner energy. And in this particular plan, our preliminary review has shown that while over the next 16 or 17 years, almost every single one of the fossil fuel, coal and natural gas plants that they have online now are set to retire. Oh, that's great, you know, supposedly. Next year, they're gonna shut down one of the Mill Creek generators, Mill Creek number one. They explain sort of generally that they're gonna absorb the, the loss of that one with pickup from some of the existing facilities. But as more and more go offline, they're gonna to have to replace them with new facilities. And at this point, our preliminary review shows that as of 2038, there's still going to be only 18% solar huh. to be powered by fossil fuels, even 18 years from now, which implies a coal plant goes down, they're either going to build a new coal plant or a new natural gas plant to replace that. Now, the, the scale of power plants is from small to very large, and there's a mixture that's needed so that they can they can generate more power when demand is high, pretty much instantaneously with smaller plants, while the, the larger plants generate a base load. So as of this point, it looks as though they're going to continue with a mostly fossil powered electrical system. And this is KULGNE together as a group. So we're studying this review and trying to find the gaps and we, we know they're there, where they don't tell us what they're going to replace a plant that's set to retire in uh, 2028 or 2030. What are they going to replace that power with? This is going to be natural gas. Are they going to add solar? Are they going to import wind energy? Or are they just going to go on with fossil fuels into the indefinite future? And we just want to make this public. We're evaluating this plan, and we're going to publish a short report that says, Here's what they're saying. The report itself is not written for the public citizen, although anybody could probably read it, but it's all about models and predictions and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. we're exploring the report to discover what they've left out, which we feel yeah. like is be a whole lot of renewable energy in the future. Yeah, that goes directly against at least the city of Louisville's goal of reducing net greenhouse gas emissions and achieving climate neutrality by 2050. Yeah, and uh, I think they're counting on LG&E. One of the things that they've been counting on, I think, is the retirement of a lot of the existing facilities in the LG&E KU network. And they don't know right now any more than I do what LG&E is going to replace those systems with. Honestly, you know, Carol, I'm surprised that in this era of climate crises and disruption, 
that they would even be able to do that, you know, without some kind of government authority coming down on them and saying, no, you have to replace your retiring power plants with renewables. Is there no, no legal standing to keep them in line with all of our survival goals? In this report, they spend a lot of time talking about requirements and regulations and laws and how they understand everything as it stands now. And the fact is, there are no laws that says you can't build a new coal power plant. There's no law that says you cannot. There's political pressure, there's, there's pressure from the public, but there's no law against it. There's no law against emitting carbon dioxide. The reason we're having so much difficulty in this process that we've been struggling with for the last at least 30 years is that there is no government authority. We have passed no legislation that puts teeth into what we know is the right thing to do, which would be to prohibit coal plants from being built. In Kentucky, we haven't even required renewable portfolio standard. Many states have said, okay, you know, here's a law. We got to have X percent, 25%, whatever, X percent of our energy for the public must come from renewable sources. A lot of states have that 20, 25% rule, maybe more, maybe less. We don't in Kentucky. Huh. There's no difference in the laws of what kind of power plant you can build today than there was in 1980 with the exception that you have to put controls on your emissions to collect sulfur dioxide and other pollutants coming out of the flu. But that doesn't address the issue of global warming. It addresses the issue of pollution, but not global warming. And you are tuned in to Truth to Power on WFMP 106.5 FM Community Radio. I'm your host, Ruth Newman, here today in the virtual studio with Terrell Holder, chair of the Greater Louisville Sierra Club. And we've been talking about the Floyd's Fork proposed development, plus the Louisville Gas and Electric's plans for meeting future energy needs. So let's continue on with the conversation. This is what I've always thought is that they already know the destruction. They can see the destruction and the flooding and all of the catastrophes that are going on. Why aren't they including that in the cost, the actual price that humanity pays for these fossil fuels? If they were to include that in the cost of building a coal-fired or natural gas power plant, it would become cost prohibitive because they couldn't afford all of the destruction that they foist on humanity by building these fossil fuel plants. Why aren't those prices incorporated in to the cost of building that power plant? What you're talking about is the external costs. Exactly. That continually go unaccounted for. I'm no economist, but what seems to happen in the financial system, they just discount the future. Now they know that there's going to be a certain amount of damage Mm -hmm. because of their footprint at every level of business. You know, there's certain damage that's done, but they don't account for it. And those unaccounted for costs are called externalities. You know, that's basically just too bad. There's no law that says they have to take that in mind. Imagine if everybody who manufactured anything, whether it's a phone or a hot dog, and had to recover every bit of waste that they put out. That is every hot dog wrapper, 
every leftover hot dog that didn't get eaten. In the case of a phone, the packaging, the phone itself, when the phone is dead, you, the company takes it back and reads it. If companies were responsible mm -hmm. for walking back everything they throw out on us, our problems would be a long way toward being solved. But they're not responsible. Once they put that stuff out in the public, you know, it gets used until it goes to the landfill. I remember many, many decades ago hearing uh, a statement from Buckminster Fuller, yeah. who said, everything has a place on this planet, everything, coal, nitrous oxide that goes up into the air. If it were in the soil, it would be fine. If the coal were back in the ground, it would be fine. If the packaging were reused and put back into the cycling of all of the different elements that cycle through, we wouldn't have any problems. I mean, you go into the forest, you know that there's death, you know that there's all kinds of drama going on in the forest, but yet it's all beautiful, it smells nice, there's no trash heaps because they are all connected. All the uh, plant life and the critters, they're all connected. So you go into the forest and you smell the fragrance of the woods, the, the peacefulness, the beauty. You go into human society and we don't know what to do after we create these products. We don't put them back into the natural cycles. And so they end up in the air like smog when they should be in the ground or they end up in the river when they should be in the ground. In nature, waste is food. This yes. is simple enough. In nature, nothing goes to waste. It's not efficient. Matter of fact, nature is highly inefficient in an energy transfer perspective, but it's perfect for what it does. I mean, in nature, waste is food. In our society, waste is something to be pushed away and hidden somewhere. Everything has a place. It's just that we don't know where that place is. We put it in the wrong place, and we have this term that we call waste. Mm -hmm. which is really an illusion. Nothing is a waste. It, it belongs somewhere. That's my feeling. We, we just haven't learned how to change our ways yet. Right. I think we're learning slowly. There's a lot of people that I know and speak with. They're doing really good things. It's a long, slow process of change. But part of the problem is that we're used to being able to go here and do that right away and uh, hop on a plane, hop in a car, go to the store, hop on your computer. I mean, the conveniences of modern life could not be possible if it weren't for the fossil fuel industry. Having power is amazing. It increases our ability to do work a thousandfold. How about we switch over to another topic? I would love to talk about networking. Networking among organizations. I was on a Zoom meeting last night that had to do with that. And it was very inspiring. And it's something that I want to start introducing also to the radio station and to the nonprofits in town. So maybe we could even do a show on networked nonprofits. Yes. What we're trying to do right now, and I won't, don't want to get into it, but we're trying to organize that process. I have a friend at Kentucky Interfaith Power and Light. I have a friend at Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. And I talk to them about stuff from time to time. Okay, that's great. But that's not network. There's no process there. And um, what we're working to, and I'm not going to spoil it by telling you something that might not come to pass, but we're working on making a formal procedure for our people to work within. 
nothing hard, just defined. So you make continuous contact, you continually share, and you grow that the intimacy between groups in a planned way. And that is exactly what I'm looking for, too. And I'm hoping the radio can play a really important role in bringing different nonprofits together in constellations and in long-term partnerships and strategic networks so that nonprofits that were related to one another that had similar goals could share their staffs and their skills with each other and, you know, put it on a united front because I think that's what we need now. We need a united front. And we've got the people and we've got the moral imperative to do it. Right. And if I can say, it takes us out of our silos. People think that, and they rightly so, they think of Sierra Club as an environmental organization. But the fact is, in today's world, we understand that there's social ecological connectivity. Okay. One doesn't exist without the other. It's all a part of the big whole. Exactly. A weakness in a system is a weakness for everybody. It's all connected. And this is not necessarily everybody in the Sierra Club thinks like this is just me. But that connectivity, that social ecological connectivity is critical if we're going to get into the future in a much better place than where we're headed right now. I completely agree. And I think you're on the right track right now where we need to be, because that's where my head has been going lately also. Thank you so much, Terrell. Now give that website one more time. SierraClub.org slash Greater Louisville Group. And you've been listening to Truth to Power on WFMP 106.5 FM with me, your host, Ruth Newman, in conversation with Terrell Holder, chair of the Greater Louisville Sierra Club. And we've been discussing a proposed rezoning for developers to build subdivisions within the Floyd's Fork District Review overlay right next door to the Parklands. We also covered LG&E's newly submitted plan for meeting future energy needs, but without mentioning what they would be replacing their retiring fossil fuel plants with. More fossil fuel plants? One would hope not. And finally, we touched on an idea known as networked nonprofits that is starting to take hold across the country. So stay tuned for a future show or shows on this very exciting new trend. And now I am going to use the remaining time to read, with the author's permission, an article that caught my attention that I hope you'll find informative and provocative. The article is titled, How 9-11 Set Progressive Causes Back and How We Rebounded, by David Corton, published in the online October 6, 2021 edition of Yes! Magazine. As the 20th anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center approached, I wasn't paying much attention, but then I received an email from my longtime colleague John Cavanaugh, 
former director of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. It was a private message recalling the, quote, justice, not vengeance, unquote, initiative that the Institute and Yes Magazine organized, along with Harry Belafonte and Danny Glover, a few days after the historic attack. We gathered signatures from our nation's leading progressives for a statement calling on Americans to resist the rush to war in Afghanistan. As I reread our statement in response to John's email and reflected on the 20-year war that followed, I was struck by three things. One was that the U.S. failures in Afghanistan that we now so clearly see were in fact foreseeable. We spelled them out in the declaration. The second is the extent to which the outcome of 9-11 was a win for Wall Street and a loss for the United States and global civil society. The third is that 9-11 and its aftermath is one element of a much larger story helpful in understanding the choices now at hand. When important actions like our military interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq seem misguided, it is often informative to ask, who benefits? Regarding these wars, three answers come to mind. First, they serve the political interests of President George W. Bush, whose approval ratings skyrocketed shortly after his invasion of Afghanistan. Second, they enriched military contractors. And third, they benefited corporate interests more generally by disrupting the momentum of a global citizen resistance against international trade and investment agreements that only benefited transnational corporations. The first two beneficiaries are well known. The third and perhaps most important merits further explanation. The 9-11 attack came as a globalizing civil society was awakening to the dangers posed by a growing concentration of unaccountable corporate power. I had experienced my own gradual awakening years before. In 1990, I published Getting to the 21st Century, which drew attention to the failures of development policies promoted by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. It drew on my experience in low-income countries of Asia, Latin America, and Africa, where I had lived and worked for much of my adult life. I observed these policies pushing people off the lands on which they had depended for their livelihoods and reducing them to itinerant agricultural workers or overworked, ill-paid factory workers. At that time, I had not yet realized that similar trends, that is toward more inequality and toward consolidated corporate control of essential resources, undermining democracy and threatening environmental health, were playing out in the United States, Europe, and Japan, which I had long seen as economic success stories. The fact that both high and low income countries shared trends in common indicated that the source of the trends I observed in Africa, Latin America, and Asia went far beyond the flawed policies promoted by neoliberal economists working for the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. 
As I was exploring these issues in the early 1990s, I was invited to join a meeting of what became the International Forum on Globalization, or IFG, a new global alliance of influential intellectual activists focused on the economic forces playing out around the world. The IFG held its first meeting in early 1994, just after the North American Free Trade Agreement was enacted. At that meeting and those that followed, we each shared the experiences of economic failure that we saw playing out in the specific context with which we were familiar. The similarities were stunning. We then focused on identifying the systemic causes of what was clearly a global economic failure. Later, we spread those insights to expanding circles of global activists through conferences, books, articles, and media. I worked them into the first edition of When Corporations Rule the World, on which I was then doing final revisions. It was a moment when many people were asking, what has gone wrong with the economy that had temporarily brought middle-class prosperity to so many people? In providing answers to that question, When Corporations Rule the World became an international bestseller when it was published in 1995. A defining lesson of my business school education was that if you treat only the symptoms of a problem, the problem will likely continue to appear. To eliminate the problem, you must identify and correct its systemic causes. That lesson was at the forefront of my mind in 1996 when I joined in founding Yes! magazine, a publication devoted to systemic solutions. Our IFG discussions later turned to framing systemic alternatives. We jointly authored Alternatives to Economic Globalization, 2003-2004, which to this day provides the best available framework for the economy of what we're now calling an ecological civilization. Between 1995 and 99, growing numbers of people around the world rallied to demonstrations against corporate rule and the international trade and investment agreements that corporations were using to advance their growing global power. This led to the 1999 battle in Seattle, which drew 50,000 demonstrators, including from labor unions, environmental organizations, and religious institutions. The protests shut down an intergovernmental meeting of the World Trade Organization. Some of the demonstrations and workshops were organized by IFG members, and the IFG hosted a parallel conference in a Seattle concert hall that drew 5,000 participants. Yes, hosted a lively reception for IFG members and other conference speakers and resistance leaders. The impact of the Seattle demonstration, combined with news coverage of violent police response, caught global attention and energized demonstrations around the world involving many hundreds of thousands of people. They forced the abandonment of the Free Trade Agreement of the Americas, a step up from NAFTA to include all of North and South America. 
they also forced the architects of the globalization of corporate power to begin holding their meetings in small countries governed by autocrats ready to use extreme force to suppress any expression of dissent. Participating in the 1990s in shining an early light on an imperialist, corporate-dominated economic system was a defining experience of my life. You are listening to Truth to Power on WFMP 106.5 FM, your all-volunteer community radio station in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm your host, Ruth Newman, reading from the article titled, How 9-11 Set Progressive Causes Back and How We Rebounded, written by David Corton, published in the online October 6, 2021 edition of Yes! Magazine. Then came 9-11. Nineteen suicide bombers armed with box cutters turned airplanes into weapons to bring down New York City's World Trade Center towers, the symbolic headquarters of global corporate rule. In an instant, Global sympathy for those who died and their bereaved families turned Wall Street from villain to victim. Declaring a perpetual war against terrorism, the United States government began rolling back civil liberties and branded dissent as support for terrorists. Corporate-friendly governments followed the U.S. lead in equating dissent with terrorism and used police and military power to suppress all protest. The voices resisting corporate globalization fell largely silent. Looking back on these events, the ironies are endless. The deaths that resulted from the collapse of the towers made Wall Street a subject of global sympathy. The wars in Afghanistan and Iraq weakened the United States and the crackdown on dissent fragmented the global progressive movement. Massive demonstrations to disrupt global meetings of the corporate power brokers largely ceased. The hijackers attacked the World Trade Center as a symbol of Western colonialism and capitalism. They committed mass murder, but by justifying a global crackdown on dissent, they strengthened the forces of Wall Street they intended to weaken. There is yet a deeper irony the global corporate agenda is destroying Earth's capacity to sustain life. That is an act of collective suicide from which no one escapes. We call the suicide bombers who brought down the World Trade Center terrorists, but the terror that they evoked was minuscule compared to the global terror evoked by unrestrained climate change, including massive wildfires, droughts, floods, and hurricanes, which trace directly to the excesses wrought by Wall Street. While making modest, pro-environmental gestures, Wall Street has a deep financial interest in maintaining the system that is causing the crisis, and many among Wall Street's champions believe that even when the economy and human society are collapsing under the weight of climate change, they will come out the winners. But there will be no winners on a dead earth. Wall Street interests have yet to recognize that their quest is ultimately suicidal, much like the attack by bin Laden's suicide bombers. 
a look at 9-11 and its aftermath within the context of a much larger human story is helpful in recognizing that we are at the midpoint of a great transformation. Post 9-11, progressive movements have focused attention on the many ways an imperialist approach to organizing human societies has wounded indigenous people, black people, Hispanics, Asians, refugees, women, and LGBTQ people. Awareness is now growing that a system that advantages the wealthy at the expense of everyone else dehumanizes the oppressors as well as the oppressed. Bottom line, the current system is not working for anyone. Rich and poor alike share a common interest in deep and rapid transformation. We're also coming to see that the institutional drivers of current social and environmental collapse are not limited to the institutions of business. The institutions of government, religion, education, and science share responsibility. All are products of an imperial civilization that continues its reign. All require significant critical examination and restructuring in ways we have scarcely even begun to discuss. The emergent ecological civilization we seek will be a world that has moved beyond divisions by class, gender, and ethnicity. It will be a world in which every person has a meaningful role in assuring a fulfilling life of material sufficiency and spiritual abundance for all on a beautiful, healthy, living earth. We stand at a point of civilizational transformation comparable to the human transition from wandering bands of hunter-gatherers to settled agricultural communities some 10,000 years ago. It's also comparable to the transformation from relatively peaceful egalitarian farming communities to societies organized around violent exploitative imperial hierarchy that occurred some 5,000 years ago. We now stand at a decisive moment in a third great transformation. The present transformation began some 250 years ago with the American Revolution and the many movements for justice that followed. Looking at the events surrounding 9-11 in the context of the larger human story gives us a deeper perspective on the source of current system failure. The integrative movement against the global consolidation of financial and corporate power that 9-11 disrupted was a crucial step toward global unification of citizen movements in search of alternatives to a dying imperial civilization. The many people power movements that arose in its stead, including Occupy Wall Street, the Arab Spring, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock Sioux, and the countless mobilizations around climate action, gender equality, and other causes temporarily drew our focus away from their common source in the values and institutions built on a foundation of oppression and exploitation. However, they made an essential contribution to building awareness of the scale of the injustices and exploitation that those values and institutions have wrought. As the imperative 
for emergency action becomes ever more apparent and urgent, I sense that attention is beginning to focus once again on root causes of the deep cultural and institutional failures that include, but extend far beyond, the institutions of Wall Street. We face painful times ahead. The disruption that comes with the collapse of a society's primary institutions is an inherently disruptive process. The faster we move on bringing forth the new, the faster we can get through the pain and settle into the new ways of being with one another and Earth on which our common future depends. It is now evident that the resistance against the global consolidation of corporate power was just one step toward unleashing the transformational power of a global movement dedicated to advancing the human transition to an ecological civilization. The challenges ahead are daunting. We have many sources of insight, but we have no proven model for the global civilization we must now bring into being. Drawing from all our sources of understanding, we must learn together as we engage in creative dialogue, community building, and testing and sharing alternatives as we go. That was my reading of David Corton's article entitled How 9-11 Set Progressive Causes Back and How We Rebounded, published October the 6th in Yes! Magazine's online edition. And before that, you heard Terrell Holder, chair of the Greater Louisville Sierra Club, discussing issues of possible development encroachment into protected areas next to the parklands. Also, LG&E's ambiguous report that did not mention what they intend to replace retiring fossil fuel plants with, as well as the concept of networked nonprofits. Well, we've come to the close of this week's Truth to Power on WFMP 106.5 FM. This is Ruth Newman thanking you for listening and inviting you to participate in this community radio project by going to www.forwardradio.org.